Well, welcome back. Welcome anew to the Further Faster podcast. I'm Joseph McClendon, and I will be your host, your guide, and maybe even your mentor for this next little while on this journey to do exactly what the name implies, and that is to assist you in going further, faster, in becoming more wealthy. And around here, of course, wealthy means healthy, happy, and financially abundant. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever heard the saying, you shouldn't care about what other people think about you? Of course you have. We all have. Matter of fact, it's a great sentiment, and it? it makes a lot of sense that other people's opinions should not affect us as deeply as it does. Matter of fact, I remember my mother used to always say, what other people think of you is none of your business. Well, on its own, that is great advice. But the truth of the matter is, Caring about what other people think about us is part of our DNA. It's built into our genetics and our epigenetics. So today, we're going to cover the F word, and that is fear of rejection. So grab a pad and paper, and I'll be right back to talk to you about something that's going to keep you alive. So why is it that we care so much about what people think about us? Why do we dress nicely? Why do we put on makeup, wear nice clothes, drive cars? Why do we worry about what people think about us if we make a mistake when we're speaking or talking or walking or doing anything? Well, as I said in the preframe, it actually comes down to it's built into our genetics. It's built into our DNA and our epigenetics, as you're going to learn here in just a little bit. It is part of our survival mechanism. You might think to yourself, well, I don't care what other people think of my, me. Well, you might not to a lesser degree, but the truth of the matter is you do, and you're going to understand that in a little while. But the truth of the matter is, if you didn't have it, you wouldn't be here right now. Let me start right here. Every living thing comes into existence with some sort of instinct, even plants. Plants know what time of year to do what. Plants know what time of year to, from the seedling to sprout all of those things. That intelligence, that innate intelligence is built inside of it. And every living thing that walks this planet has some sort of instinct. The gazelle, the baby gazelle that's born on the Serengeti Plains, as soon as it drops out of its mom, it has to either stand up and walk within a few minutes or learn to hide in the brush from predators, otherwise it will die. So everything has instinct, including human beings. But the truth of the matter is, human beings have less of it than almost any animal on the planet. Birds don't have, to be, don't have to go to school to learn how to fly south for the winter. Human beings, we come into this outside of, I think the elephant is the only other, ele the only other animal that, has to, that is dependent on its parents or somebody around it for its absolute needs for the longest period of time. An elephant, it's two to three years. Now, an elephant will stay with its parents and, and with its uh, caregivers up to 16 years old. But by two or three years, that animal can feed itself and find food on its own. A baby at two or three years, it'll die if it's left on its own. So babies, they have to have, they know instinctively that they have to have other people around to give them their emotional and physical needs. Now, 
Uh, there's an un- unbelievable amount of research done on this subject, but I'm going to start with a book that I read many, many years ago, and I forgot the, the, the author's name, but the, name, the title of the book was You Were Born Perfect, What Happened? <laughs> and what they talked about was this, that when we come into this existence, we're born kicking and screaming, and we have only one fear and two needs. The needs are the need to avoid physical pain. And that one's obvious because physical pain could lead to death. And that's unacceptable. It is a survival instinct that's built into every living thing. We must keep on living. The other need is the need to grow and learn. Because again, instinctively, that little baby knows at some point it's going to have to fin for itself. It's going to have to be on its own and it's going to have to learn about this world that it lives in. So that's why babies experiment, put things in their mouths and and do things and, and crawl all over the place and experiment doing all kinds of things because they're learning about the world. Those are the needs and all babies have them. But the only fear, the only fear that a human being has is the fear of being left alone. Similar to the same reason about growing and learning instinctively, That baby knows that if it doesn't have another human being around it, it will die. It does not, it cannot take care of itself. As a matter of fact, studies show that obviously, you know, the human baby, when it is born, it is one of the most helpless animals on the planet as it's born. And they say it's because of our big brain, our big head is so big that it wouldn't fit through the birth canal if it was at its fully developed stage to have all of the instincts and other animals do and all the intelligence and other animals do. So we're born with a smaller brain and a collapsible head so that it comes through. Now, human beings do have some instincts. All babies can swim and all those things, but it goes away, doesn't it? It atrophies out of it. We'll talk about that here in just a little while. But the truth of the matter is what does not atrophy out, and as a matter of fact, to a lesser or greater degree, gets better or worse through time. If you have a child, you know the difference between the cries of a child that is uncomfortable, like it's hungry or it needs its diaper changed or something's wrong with it in that way, or if that child is alone, finds out that it's alone, wakes up that it's alone. When they hook a a child to an EEG machine, electroencephalograph machine, and they register the level of fear, it is the same as the fear of death when that child realizes that it's alone. You know, you know, I remember when my son was little, it was definitely you could tell a difference between the scream that when that baby was left alone than when that child was hungry. And again, it is all for the reasoning that that baby knows that it's got to have somebody around it for its physical and emotional needs. Now, you say to yourself, okay, well, that's an infant. We all grow up. Well, the truth of the matter is that doesn't go away. As a matter of fact, like I said, to a lesser or greater degree, it gets better or worse. I'll give you an example. Kids go to school. Now, by the way, it lives inside of us. It's deep inside of us. And it's in, as I say, our genetics. And I'll talk about epigenetics here in a moment. But it lives inside of us. And what happens is, here's the example. Let's say you made it all the way to high school. You made it all the way to grade school. And you get there, and there are the popular kids, and there are the unpopular kids. <laughs> and the unpopular kids, are they stay, they stay in one place. The popular kids stay in the other place. 
And what happens is, matter of fact, there was a movie, several movies about it called Mean Girls a little while ago. Why do the kids care so much about what other people think about them? So you may have one kid that say, yeah, look at those kids. You're poor. You know, you need better tennis shoes or those tennis shoes are crazier. Look at that hairdo you have or the makeup that you have and that kind of thing. And when that kind of thing is, is said, it is rejection. And rejection is that fear, that fear of being left alone. It's just another word, another phrase for being left alone, that fear of being left alone. And it strikes as deep as it does unconsciously inside of us. It makes us feel like we're being rejected, which means we're being left alone, which means we could die. And I know that sounds dramatic and sounds drastic, but the truth of the matter is most people don't know the difference because we've gone over it so many times. Because remember, whatever experience a human being has over and over again, it will become a habit and habits are unconscious, which means we don't think about it. We don't reason about it. We go, oh, this makes sense or this doesn't make sense. We fear about it. Now, as a psychologist, the number one fear of human beings, the number one fear is the fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. I remember in Los Angeles when I was practicing in Los Angeles, one of the most popular um, therapies that I would do would be grown men that are afraid of women. Ladies, you scare the holy bejesus out of us. I'd get these guys that would call me up and these are big strapping, you know, six foot three, four, five men, you know, macho men. And they would call me up and I'd know right off the bat what was going on and they'd go, uh, Mr. McClendon, I, I understand um, uh, you can help me uh, with a fear. And I go, well, what's going on? And you can hear it in their voice. They go, well, there's this girl. <laughs> there's this woman. And I go, really, tell me about her. And they always say the same things. Oh, she's an angel. She's beautiful. I, I really want to ask her out, but I'm afraid to ask her out. And I always ask the question, well, what would happen if you did? And they go, well, she could say no. She, she might say no. And I would also say again, well, what would happen if she said no? And across the board, like clockwork, they'd always say the same thing. Oh, I would just die or something to that manner. I would just die. I don't think I could take it. She's this, she's that, and all those things. Which goes back on just what I'm saying. If they got rejected, especially by somebody that they held in such high esteem, somebody that they admired, if they got rejected, it would mean there's something wrong with them. And if there's something wrong with them, then they, then they would be rejected by society and they would die. Now, they don't intellectualize that, but they just have that feeling. Now, without going, in, without going into it, you've heard uh, maybe me, me talk about it before. My therapeutic methodology as a neuropsychologist is a bit unorthodox because guess what would be in my office? Or shall I say, who would be in my office when they showed up in my office? I had a friend of mine on a scale from one to 10 of absolute sexiness and gorgeousness. She was an 11 or 12 or a 13. And I would hire her just to sit in my office and bring these guys in. Why? Because I wanted to experience that, that fear and see it so we could do something about it. Now, that's on a whole nother episode. And I'll tell you about how I would go about doing that. But the truth of the matter is that that fear of, of rejection lives in every single one of us. Now, that's a radical example, but I'm sure you can correlate that to other things. Why is it that 
that stage fright is so huge? Why is it that when people have to get up and speak to somebody, when people have to talk to somebody? Now, by the way, things have changed a little bit right now. I shouldn't say a little bit, quite a bit because of the advent of social media. More and more people are more comfortable with being uh, in front of the camera and doing that than they used to be. Uh, but it's still kind of the same. And so, as I said, going all the way back to when that baby uh, has, has that experience, and I mentioned something called epigenetics. Now, epigenetics are this. It is, the, uh, uh, among other things, one of, the, one of its main components is the study of how the fears of the ancestors are passed along to generations and their offspring how the fears of the ancestors of, of the grandparents and the grandparents before then, the great, 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 great grandparents, all the way down to caveman times are passed on to the other generations. And the example that I like to use, uh, and, and again, there's so much study on this, so many things, and this is just one aspect of it, is that they would take mice. And this is an example because they did things with human beings as well, but this is a, a probably one of the clearest examples that I could give is they would take mice and they would introduce these mice to the smell of um, cinnamon or maybe vanilla. And as soon as they would introduce the smell to the animal, they would also give it an electric shock. Now, I'm not crazy about this experiment. I'm just giving it to you it's because just as the example. Introduce the smell, shock the animal, give the animal some pain. Till pretty soon, every time they introduced the smell of vanilla or cinnamon or whatever that, that, uh, that fragrance was, that animal would go into stress. They would measure it. Its cortisol release would be high and it would go into a panic mode. Now, here's the interesting thing. They took these mice and they bred them with other mice that didn't have that same experience. And the offspring, they bred with another set of animals that didn't have that experience. And the offspring, offspring, 10 generations down the road. And you would think that that would be bred out. Well, guess what? All they had to do was to these 10 generations away of the offspring of these, of these mice, was introduced the smell of, of cinnamon and or, or vanilla or whatever it was, and that animal would go into just as much stress and all the hormones as the 10-generation ancestors ahead of time or, or before them. What does that mean? What that means is that fear got passed along. That's called epigenetics into the genetics, which was already there, by the way, which was some of it was already there that some of the, uh, any animal fears, you know, you know, any kind of pain, like I said, that the number one need is to avoid fear. I mean, is to avoid pain. So it already has that inside, but it is, it is exemplified, elevated by just being passed down through the genes. Now, why do I say that? Let's just say you have an experience. Maybe you, you got up in front of uh, uh, your classroom at 10 years old and you stuttered and you stumbled over your words and there were some jerk kids in, in your classroom and they teased you and they laughed at you. Now, you remember, you already have this fear of rejection deep inside of your, your genetics anyway, but this one made it even worse for you. And you became 
so afraid that you never spoke in front of people again. And the thought of having to get up and speak in front of people gave you heart palpitations and you had anxiety attacks and all those things and you avoided it at all costs. Well, guess what would happen to your offspring? Now, not across the board, because uh, because as human beings, one of the great things is that we can learn and we can change. Well, chances are, and we've and it has been studied at nauseum across the board. They look down the lines. Why do I have this? Why is it so much greater in me than it is in somebody else? And oftentimes they'll find out that there was an experience that this person before then, my mother was afraid, my father was afraid, my, and all of these things that go down the line. And all of this to say and that this is not an exact science like that, but I'm sure you can see how these things could exist and do exist this way. Now, there is the antithesis. There is the opposite of that as well. And I just happen to be one of those examples. And it's what, <laughs> it's what allows me to do what I do right now. If you know anything about my background, I've had the privilege of speaking live in front of well over 5 million people, sometimes 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people at a time. I love it. I thrive on it. I crave it. It's one of my favorite things to do. I was a musician for a great deal of my life as well as an entertainer and doing that. However, I will say this. There was a time in my life where I had stage fright so bad that I couldn't go on stage before with, without going through all kinds of panic. But I had an interesting upbringing that let's just say uh, it certainly didn't cure me of it, but it did make it a whole lot more comfortable for me and a lot easier for me to get over it when it was time to face those things. When I was about 10, between 10 and 14 years old, my mother was a saint. <laughs> my mom was one of these people who, even though we didn't have much, my mother would go out and do things for other people that had less than us. She would do basket brigades around the holidays. She would do things that would do, you know, she'd always, uh, you know, collect money and things like that. And one of the things that she made us do, matter of fact, one of the things that she did was she would go and how she did this, I don't know. She would go into the poor sections of town, into the ghettos of town. Now, we didn't have much at all. We didn't have uh, money, but, you know, we had more than them. And she would somehow convince parents of, of these children to loan us their children for the summer. I had three sisters. She would get three girls and one boy. And they were always like a couple years younger than us. And she said, your job through this entire summer is to mentor this child, is to give this, because they, you don't have, you, don't, you have more than they do, is to teach them and to raise them. And I hated it. I absolutely hated it because, you know, at that age, you're 10 years old, it's summertime, you're out of school, you want to do the things that you want to do. And now I got this creepy little kid who just, you know, was tagging along. And at one point, I realized that this kid really looked up to me. And at one point, I, I, and I remember this to, to this day, that one time I was upset. And you know, I admit this, I wasn't, it, was, it wasn't a very kind thing to do. And I barked at this kid and I go, why are you always around? You know, you're, you're screwing up my summer. And this kid was devastated, absolutely devastated, could not stop crying. And my mother came and she go, what did you say to him? And, I, and I, I told her and she said, you have no right to do that. You know, you have no right. You apologize. And I apologized to the kid, but it was something that came from my heart because I realized now I'm intellectualizing it now, but I realized what I did 
was I crushed this kid. I really made him feel useless and worthless. Here he is. He doesn't have much anyway. And here he is being rejected by me. And again, I'm real. I'm, I'm intellectualizing it now, but I realize now what I did to this child was absolutely horrible. Now, fortunately, <laughs> I changed my ways and I took him under my wing and I taught him some things and so on and so forth. And uh, I think it was, gosh, about three or four years that we did this. And several of those children who are now grown men and women now have contacted our family and said that those summers, that those times that we accepted those children and, and that we took them into our family changed their lives and they made, it made them better people, made them different people. Why am I telling you this? Well, Number one, obviously, if you've been around me at any length of time, you know that, I, that kindness is always is one of what I call the 21 immutable laws of magnetism. It gets more for you in your life, but it's the right thing to do. But it also changes people's lives because it helps them feel like it helps them realize that they are accepted, which is the antithesis of rejection exception. And that's what everybody wants. People want to be accepted. And just a little bit of that kind of kindness changes everything. And when you do that, and when you do that for somebody, two things happen. Number one, you change their lives. But number two, you change your life because you're the one that's doing the accepting. And it makes you feel good about yourself because guess what? Fear of rejection is not just fear of rejection from somebody else and other people. It's fear of rejection from ourselves as well. We go through our lives. I always say this procrastination, hesitation, fear of failure, fear of success, self-doubt, self-loathing, imposter syndrome, and fear of failure. Those are the thieves of our dreams, and they're all generated inside whom? Ourselves. We're going to take a short break, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to share with you a little bit more about what you can do to flip that switch, to flip that script, if you will, and create more of a not, uh, not, not caring about what other people think but an assumption that what other people think of you is something that is accepting and makes you feel and become a better human being. So I'll be right back after this. Enjoying this episode on Angel Phoenix Productions Podcast Network. To explore a complete lineup of quality programs and media production services, head on over to angelphoenix.com or like our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Angel Phoenix Productions. Well, welcome back. Welcome back. We have been talking about the fear of rejection, the number one fear of human beings and why we care and why we should care about what other people think. And I know that flies in the face of a lot of my contemporaries who say, nope, don't care about what other people think. You shouldn't care. It doesn't matter. Screw those people. You're the one that makes a difference. And they're absolutely right in that last thing that you're the one that makes a difference. And you should care about what other people think about you with this caveat. Now, first off, let me finish what I was saying <laughs> earlier before the break. Uh, another thing that happened within those incidents that I was telling you that my mom had us do that made us, let's just say, cancel out our epigenetics, uh, if you will, of, of fear of rejection. It made it a lot easier for us to be, my, myself and my sisters, to be able to do the things that we do. All of my sisters, uh, as a matter of fact, one of my sisters was... Uh, 
uh, an actress and and did some things. I don't know if you guys remember back in the olden days, there was a show called The Gong Show. And, um, you know, we would my sisters and I would do all kinds of things and uh, that other people wouldn't. Then, and we didn't we didn't have the fear that most people did uh, of that. And one of the main contributors of that, as I said before, one of the main contributors was was, was that we we had the my mom gave us the task of mentoring other children um, as we were younger. And that was one thing. And, and by the way, when we did that, I would have to bring this kid around me, around my older friends, you know, my friends that were around me. And they didn't appreciate that I brought this kid along as well. And I would defend this kid. Listen, this is, you know, uh, this is something I have to do. And if you guys don't like that, he's with then I'm out as well. And what happened is they would change. And so it gave me the opportunity to stand up to bullying, if you will. It gave me the opportunity to stand up and defend somebody else that had less and was younger and so on and so forth. That was one thing. But the other thing that she had us do, which, again, I hated, my sisters hated it, but my mom made us do it. Number one, as I said before, she would have us go around and we would give baskets of food to families. We'd knock on the door and go, you know, we want you to have this gift. And sometimes people were not accepting of that. It was just like, get out of here. You know, we don't, we don't want charity, that kind of thing. We'd give uh, this food to other people. But one of the other things that we did was my mother, and I say made us through tears and anger and, and, and crying and all this thing, she made us go door to door collecting money for the St. Jude's Children's Hospital. <laughs> we had to go up and we had this little speech that we had to do. And my mom sat us down and she said, you say it to me, you rehearse it to me. Oh, mom, I don't want to do this. And we had to say this. Hi, my name is Joseph McClendon III and I live in the neighborhood here. And did you know that there are children that are, are afflicted with illnesses like cancers and, and debilitating diseases and they don't have the money to be taken care of? And so we're collecting money for the St. Jude's Children's Hospital and anything that you could contribute would help these people. And I remember that, you know, that speech was like, <laughs> you know, it's ingrained in my nervous system. But to go up and knock on somebody's door. And by the way, not everybody was kind and not and not every and in fact, most people were not kind. They were not even acceptable. They were not. They, they didn't accept it at all. People would slam the doors in our faces. People would say things to us about, you know, I'm African-American. They would say things about my race. They would say things, get out of here, you know, that we're scamming them and things like that. But we had to go door to door. And I remember my mom taught us. She said, look, when you go to a door and you knock on the door and somebody is rude to you and somebody is mean to you, remember this, you have that person for just a few minutes, somebody else, somebody's, that, that somebody's husband or somebody's wife or somebody's child, and they have that person 24-7. You just got a few minutes. So shake it off, wipe it off and move on to the next person. Say next. And I remember going up to every door and doing that. And what would happen, and she used to also say, the next person might be the person that's going to be kind to you. And sure enough, I would say the average would be 10 people would say no to one person would say yes. And every once in a while, and it was freezing, by the way, this was in the wintertime, and I hate the cold. Every once in a while, people would invite us in and give us cookies and, you know, hot cocoa and things like that. And did you know that three years running, my sister and I, for whatever county or whatever uh, uh, section that was, were the highest earning. We collected more money than anybody else in doing that. And I remember at one point, 
being excited to go to the next door, being excited about, okay, this is the next one. It's the next one. I might get a cookie. And the next one, it's this and collecting the money. And then I started to realize, well, it's not the cookies. It's not all that stuff. It's the good that I'm doing for those children. Because the experience that I had with that young boy back there when I made him feel bad and then I helped him feel good was the same experience that I got when I realized that I'm helping somebody feel good. I'm helping changing somebody's lives. And that made it easier because when I you know, got out on my own, like I said, and becoming a musician and doing the things that even that I do right now made it easier because I hear now people go, Joseph, how do you do this? Well, I have methodology and obviously that's what we teach at the Neuro Encoding Institute. There's ways to get through that even quicker. But the truth of the matter is what I believe is I changed my epigenetics. <laughs> I changed it. And evidence of that is right now, my son, now he's 16 years old, but guess what he has seen his entire life. As a matter of fact, when he was born, that was, he was born in 2007 and YouTube was just starting to come on the scene. And my dear friend, you heard him on one of the podcasts uh, earlier, Andy Broadaway, introduced me to videos and making videos. And so since the, my son has been on the planet, it's all he's seen me is in front of the camera and talking and he's seen me on stage and things like that. And do you know that this kid is absolutely fearless? Absolutely fearless. I didn't have to teach it to him. He makes videos of his own. I bring him into seminars. He gets in front and he introduces me. He does things. He has a film class. As a matter of fact, one of the things that he does in school is his school. He's in high school now. He's a, he's a sophomore in high school. One of the things that he does is he does a... a uh, every few days, a um, news broadcast, like their their school has a broadcast that they do, and he's up there, and people say, "Well, you're a natural," and he will tell them, "Well, listen, that you know, that's all I've known. That's all I've known in my life." So what I'm saying to you is this: is that yes, you have that inside of you, and remember earlier when I was saying that I would put an attractive woman in a room. And I would bring in my uh, client, if you will, the person that had a fear of women. Here's the reason why is because most people avoid the very thing that they want to get over for obvious reasons. You know, going back on what I said earlier, you want to uh, you want to avoid physical and emotional pain. So why would you put yourself in that kind of pain? Here's the reason why, because you want to put yourself in that position so you can snap yourself out of it. Why? Because the more you do anything the better you'll get it. And I call it human physics. Anything that a human being repeats over and over again, they'll get better and better at it. So the more you put yourself in front of the situation that you, that makes you uncomfortable, and the more you snap yourself out of it, the better you'll get at snapping out of it and the quicker you will. So how do you do that? You do what I'm doing right now. I call it talking into the void. Now, right now I have a camera on me. I'm looking right in that camera and I'm talking to you, even though I can't see you. Now, like I said earlier, in this day and age, it's gotten so much better because people are doing selfies and posting themselves and things like that. But here's what I encourage you to do. I encourage you to do this. And it's going to feel a little creepy in the, in the very beginning, but I want you to do it. Because remember, around here, it's not about just listening to me or my guests yak and yak. We always want to give you something to help you go further faster so you develop a better muscle. And the muscle that you're going to learn in doing this is the muscle of stepping up and it's not that you're not caring. It is that your assumption is, well, first off, let me say this. If you're concerned and you feel bad or you're worried about what other people think, there's a presupposition is that they think something bad of you. 
What if you thought that, well, wait a minute, they think I'm amazing. What if they think, think, think that I'm great? Or what if you don't think about the other at all? And the way to do that is to, as I said, speak into the void. Turn on your camera. And, all, and you can do anything. I don't care if it's recite a poem or read something from a book or talk to it to the camera and then watch it. Because here's what it comes down to. It is the equivalent of putting that beautiful woman in a room or a dog in a room if somebody has a fear of dogs. You have to face your fear. And your biggest fear is your opinion of you. You see, what other people think of you, you may, you're most of the time wrong. They're, you know, how dare you? They're probably not even thinking of you. But here's what happens. When we watch ourselves, when we video ourselves and we watch that, most of the time, here's what we do. Oh, look at my makeup. Look at the way I said this. Or I stumbled over that. And we're criticizing ourselves. I want you to do something different. As you watch yourself, I want you to you know, do like a five-minute speech or a three-minute speech of something, reading a book or whatever talking about anything at all. And when you read it back, I want you to critique it like this. First, I want you to ask yourself what was great about it. And I want you to search your brain and I want you to find something that was great about it. Even I just did it at all, or I look nice on this so that you look for it because the brain will start to rewire itself and you'll create more neural associations. Secondly, you ask yourself, what could I do that would make it even better? The searching process is the rewiring process. Do this. This process will help you become more comfortable with being around other people and will help you mitigate your fear of other people's opinion of you and help you start to recognize that you're a badass anyway. So listen, I want to thank you. And again, as I always say, this is not about just listening to me give you some advice. I want you to do this and I want to hear back from you. And remember, life is always, always exactly what you dare to make it. And fortune, whatever you consider fortune is, fortune favors the bold. So the trick to life is to boldly step up and dare to make your life magnificent. My deepest wish for you is that you go further, faster, and become wealthy, healthy, happy, and financially abundant. I'll see you at the top. This podcast was a production of Angel Phoenix Productions. Explore more episodes of this show or other great shows on the Angel Phoenix Podcast Network by visiting angelphoenix.com. The views expressed in this show do not necessarily represent those of Angel Phoenix Productions or its advertisers and may contain language that's unsuitable for younger listeners.